So, for the last few weeks, um, for those of you who don't know, I have a, a book coming out. It'll be the end of October. And so we've been kind of going through some of the themes of the various chapters, just guys, uh, kind of as a run-up to that. And the uh, last couple of weeks, we've been, uh, been doing that. We're going to do that again this morning. And the topics of each chapter are, of course, absolutely appropriate to our lives. And the theme of the book, for those of you who are not aware of it, it's uh, called Daring to Think Again. It's restoring Jesus' original challenge to the faith that we think we know. And what is Jesus' original challenge? Well, the original challenge was to sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. And we take that to be given to a specific person who had great physical wealth and, and, and great power in his community. But really, on a spiritual level, it is the call for all of us to let go of everything that we think we know in preparation to be able to bring in a new truth that comes from such a radically different place that if we don't unlearn first, we will never be able to get what Jesus is talking about or to go where he's trying to take us. And so this idea of taking, making the descent before you can make the ascent, or as we were talking about last week, that God's love is so absolutely all-leveling, indiscriminate, poured out equally on everyone, that if we're not willing to be leveled first, which means the death of our egoic mind and all its uh, schemes and all of its plans to rise head and shoulders above everybody else and be bigger and better and beyond, unless we're willing to just let ourselves come down to ground and realize we're just the same as everyone else, no better, but no worse, then we can start to have the first inklings of what this absolute love is all about that takes no notice of our accomplishments. We're not loved because we're different. We're loved because we're the same. We're all the same in God's eyes from that point of view. And so making that decent, emptying out, which Jesus did, first of all, with his birth. He did it in the, in the wilderness. There are themes and, and cycles throughout the narrative of Jesus' life in the Gospels where he is descending and then ascending, and then, of course, descending into the grave and ascending on Easter Sunday. So those motifs are there, and they're all throughout the Bible. I mean, what is Jonah going into the belly of the whale? You know, what is Moses going into the backwater of the Midian for 40 years to be a shepherd before he comes back to lead his people? Noah going into the ark for 40 days and 40 nights. All of these are the same motif, the same shape of the journey. And if we're not willing to take that journey, if we're not willing to make the descent, then we can't make the ascent on the other side. God's love levels before it lifts and we have to accept both sides of that equation if we want to go where Jesus is going. So two weeks ago, we talked about trust. And the name of the chapter was Free Fall, and it had to do with a skydiving adventure of mine, but as a metaphor for life. And each one of these chapters, these 12 chapters that deal with a specific topic, I state a challenge, or I state a tradition first, a traditional way that we in the West have looked at certain issues. And then the whole chapter is a, an adventure, kind of a journey through a different way of looking at that same thing from Jesus' point of view as a first century Hebrew, and then coming out with a challenge on the other side. So there's an epigraph at the beginning of the chapter that states the tradition, and then there's another one at the end that states the challenge. So in trust, the challenge of the tradition was that the goal of spiritual practice is clarity. The goal of spiritual practice is clarity. The more we understand, the more we trust. Now, from a Western point of view, that sounds pretty straightforward. 
We are searching for clarity. We want to know the answers. And the more that we understand, the more that we're going to trust. But as we went through the journey of trust, looked at from a different point of view, the challenge was that mental effort has nothing to do with trust. That, if I could read my writing, it would be better. That repeated experience alone creates a sense of risk-freeness that we call trust. So it's not about trying to grab onto something mentally. It's about the repeated experience of trustworthiness of God or someone or anything before we finally learn to trust. In terms of love, the tradition was God created us to love him back. I heard that ever since I was in grammar school with the nuns, right? God created us to love him back. And the more we love, the more God loves us. The more we love, the more God loves us. And so that sounds kind of logical to us, but as we went through our journey, it's God is love without degree or condition, unaffected by anything that we do. We can't make God love us any more or any less. We can only receive more or less. And so it's taking the idea that we think we know about these issues and turning them around, using Jesus' teaching as the basis for it all and a lot of stories and everything else in, in, uh, as besides. So today I wanted to talk about presence. Presence is one of the is, is just absolutely key. The, the older I get, the more I realize that presence is at least 95% of the spiritual journey, if not closer to 100%. There may be other factors in spiritual journeys, of course, but presence is the ticket in the door. It is the absolute prerequisite. It's the ground of all being. If we can't learn to be present, then nothing else is going to take hold. So the tradition about presence is that church, prayer, and worship create sacred space. Places we can go to meet God. Does that sound pretty rational to you? Okay, let's take a little journey and see if there's another way that we can look at presence. Church, prayer, worship, create sacred space, places we can go to meet God. The implication there is that there is, if there is any place that we go to meet God, what about the place we were before we went to meet God? Is that a place we can't meet God? Is that unsacred space? We have to think more deeply about what presence really means in order for us to dive into what Jesus is trying to show us. Several years ago, it's getting to be a lot of years ago, I was, I was much younger then, um, took a trip out to Death Valley, and I still had my Vanagon. How many of you remember the old Vanagon? You know? Yeah, it's like a 84 Volkswagen Vanagon with all the seats out in the back, so it was just like a big, empty space. Drove out to Death Valley with some students that, that I was working with at a local Bible college, and um, I really wanted to see the stars. I hadn't seen a dark sky in decades, it seemed like. And so we left and timed it so that we arrived in Death Valley at about 11 o'clock at night. And it was uh, late summer. I'm sorry, late summer. We didn't go there in late summer. It was late winter. So I think it was February when we, when we went out there. And, it, uh, you know, it was like high 70s uh, when we got there at 11 o'clock at night. And I don't know if you know anything about Death Valley, but it's kind of a convection oven, the way that it's shaped. And so uh, it keeps the hot air circulating throughout. So during the day, if it's 124 degrees at 4 p.m., then it's 122 degrees at 4 a.m. It just does not cool off. It's just the most amazing thing. 
But we get there, and it's about high 70s. And we go into the city of Stovepipe Wells, and I use city lightly. It was just a collection of buildings. Um, But Stovepipe Wells. And I knew that there was a dune field just a few miles out of town. So uh, one of the kids, uh, you know, went to bed and copped out. But the rest of us, I think there was four or five of us, we drove out to the dune field, pitch black out there, and uh, parked on the side of the road, got our flashlights, and just started walking into the dunes. Um, I don't know how many hundred yards or so until... You couldn't see anything but dunes all around you. So there was just dunes. There was a, a ragged line of, of, of mountains, real rugged mountains off to one side. And then the city lay on the other side. But nothing but just darkness. And, of course, we're watching for anything that slithered or looked poisonous in the little space the flashlights threw on the dune. Watching that. Found a dune, sat down, turned off our lights, and just waited for our eyes to adjust. And I still remember that sand was cold, really cold, and was fine like talcum powder. It wasn't like beach sand. It was just had this different sort of quality to it. I guess after being pummeled by the wind for millennia, you know, just grounded into this fine powder. And the air was warm, the sand was cold, and we're sitting there. And as our eyes adjusted, that whole expanse of sky just opened up. Just incredible. And if you've ever been to a place with a really dark sky, you know what it looks like. It's almost like there's more light than dark in the sky. It's like the blackness is in the minority. There are so many lights. And then the whole band of the Milky Way just angles across, you know, and it's got colors in it, and it just stretches across. And as you watch it, the whole sheet is turning. You can watch stars actually drop down, you know, to the west and rise in the east as this whole thing is turning. And it was just an amazing experience. And I felt closer to the stars while I was sitting there. And then when we left, I realized, why did I feel closer to the stars when I was sitting on that dune? I guess because I could see them. I mean, that makes sense, right? Feel closer to somebody when you can see them than when you don't. But where had the stars really gone? When the sun came up that morning... And the sky turned gold and then turned blue, and all the stars disappeared. Where did they go? See, they didn't go anywhere. They're still right there where we left them. It's just that big near star came up. Do you all know why the sky is blue, by any chance? Why is the sky blue? Daddy? (laughs) Mr. Rogers could tell you. Or who is it? Bill Nye, the science guy? Bill Nye, the science guy. He could tell us. The sky is blue because when the sun shines white light on us and it's got all the colors of the rainbow, it is the low-frequency light, starting with red, that can pass through the Earth's atmosphere. But the high-frequency light, which is blue, since it has such short waves, gets scattered by all the molecules in the atmosphere. And so it's scattered out there. So when we look at the sky, we see only the blue spectrum of light. And that blue spectrum just obscures and blows out anything else behind it. But it's still right there. There's no change. The stars are still there. And I was thinking about that on the ride home, thinking how I'm looking up, the stars are still right there. And then this next thought struck me. There are stars beneath my feet. It's just that this ball that I'm standing on, or at the time riding on, is obscuring the fact that there are stars beneath my feet. And that kind of baked my noodle a little bit. You know, Imagine if you were free-floating in space. And you looked up, you looked down, you looked side to side, you looked around. Equal density and distribution everywhere you look. Stars, the star field will look uniform. I 
talked about the fact that my most lasting memory of uh, skydiving was after I pulled and I'm hanging by these marionette strings from my sail, right? And I'm looking at the tops of my boots and I'm kicking and there's nothing beneath them but a mile of air, 5,000 feet of air. It's just I can still see those boots kicking and nothing beneath. I imagine in space my boots kicking and stars, just immense star field beneath them. And I look up and there's an immense star field above as well. So there's something unsettling about stars beneath our feet. At least for me. Am I the only one? And that makes... There should be something that you stand on. You know, I should only have to deal with infinity in one direction, not beneath my feet. Where do I stand? Where, where am I? Well, you know, how do I know what up and down and right and left are? Where are the coordinates if there's stars beneath my feet and in every direction looking exactly the same? And we talked about this last week or the week before, too, that that's exactly the model of the universe that Stephen Hawking has posited that most theoretical physicists are grabbing onto, that the universe is finite but has no edge. What does that mean? It means that it's not infinite. The, 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 the universe actually has a certain mass, I suppose. It's expanding, but there's no space on the outside of it. It's, ex- it's creating space as it expands, essentially, like a gigantic black hole. And if you go far enough in any one direction, you never have the stars thin out and you can look back at the ball of the universe. You'll end up back where you started again. It's just like traveling the inside of a ping-pong ball. No matter where you go, you'll end up back where you started because space is curved over on itself or this has created a ball of space, if you will. I know it's a little bit mind-bending, but here's the most important reason that I even bring this up. Why do you bring this up? It's because in such a scenario, anywhere you are in the universe looks like any place else in the universe. The stars are always equal density and distribution in every direction, which means that mathematically, any point in the universe is the exact center of the universe because no other position makes any sense whatsoever. And of course, the analogy to that was God's love that God's love, equal density and distribution, wherever you are, you're still in the center. But we have to think about presence in the same way. I mean, can you really separate presence from love anyway? Pure presence is love. Love is unity, connection. And so all of this is related. And I love the fact that science, as we go deeper and deeper and, and probe deeper and deeper, both into the micro and into the macro, science and spirituality, religion, are coming closer and closer together. It's like our scriptures took this leap 4,000, 2,000 years ago intuitively to really say everywhere you are is in the center of God's love because God's love is absolute and infinite. And now science is catching up to the same idea from the physical side. But wouldn't it make sense that God created a universe that reflected the allness of who he is anyway? It reminded me of, uh, in 600 BCE, there was a, a, the, a, a archaeological, not, well, archaeological discovery, but it was an architectural or engineering wonder of the world where there was a mountain that they needed to run an aqueduct through. And so the ancient Greeks... Um, at Samos, they had two teams that dug from opposite sides of the mountain. And nobody knows how they did it because they didn't have magnetic compasses, to our knowledge. They didn't have modern instrumentation or satellite hookups to know where they were going. They had some kind of calculations they were doing and they're just chopping away in the dark. And when they met in the center of the mountain, the ceilings were only four centimeters offset after having dug almost a mile in both directions. Amazing! 
But this is what happens when science and spirituality, digging from their opposite sides of the mountain, when they meet in the center of all God's things, and they're saying the same thing, this is really cool. This is what's happening. As we approach truth, we are approaching the one truth. And whether we're approaching it from science, approaching it from spirituality or even religion, we're going to get to the center of all God's things because no other place makes any sense. Every place is the center of all God's things. And so I guess the question we need to ask ourselves is, is God's presence really like the stars? Is my analogy sound? Does the analogy hold? Well, let's take a look at Matthew 28. This is the very last verse of the very last chapter of Matthew. And Jesus finally says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. A beautiful promise. Spoken to his followers who are feeling like abandoned sheep at this point. They were abandoned at the crucifixion. They thought. They scattered. And then when they see him again and realize he still lives, now he's leaving again, and they're feeling scattered and lost again. And he gives them this promise, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And here's the kicker. If Jesus and the Father are one, then it's a package deal. It means the Father is with us always and to the end of the age. This is a promise that he's making. Take a look at Exodus 3 and see the same idea in a different way. This is, this is Moses at the burning bush. This is when he's in his descent, when he's in his um, unlearning period. And he's been herding sheep for 40 years, basically. And he's built a family and done all that as well. But being alone, as, as shepherds are, sometimes for weeks or months on end, driving their sheep to pasture, someplace where they can get the food that they need. He develops what many Jews call the shepherd consciousness, which is living in that kind of solitude, in that kind of silence, but still having to be wakeful and watchful over the sheep creates a different kind of awareness, a different kind of presence and consciousness. So as Moses is walking and he sees the burning bush, that in itself was no big deal. There are creosote bushes and other bushes that do spontaneously combust in the desert. But he notices this one because it's burning, but it's not being consumed, which means he was present enough and aware enough to notice something different about that. And then he says, I've got to turn aside and see what's going on here. Something different is happening. And this is when he has his encounter with God. This is sacred space. Take off your shoes. Holy space. And Moses is told by God to free his people, of course, and Moses objects and, and... has this debate with God. And finally, of course, he agrees to do it reluctantly because he feels he isn't the person for it. But then he objects one more time and says, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're telling me to go out to my people that I haven't seen in 40 years and telling them to do all of this. Who in the world do I say is sending me? You know, where's your credentials, Lord? Where's the resume? Where, where is the, 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 the ticket that gets me in the door here? Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Okay. What is going on here? 
I am has sent me to you. The, in, in Hebrew, haya, asher, haya. Haya means, it's, it's kind of the, it's the verb to be. It means uh, to be, to become, or basically to exist. It is a word for, for basic being, if you will. And in that particular format, I am. Asher is a relative pronoun that's kind of an all-purpose pronoun. It, it can mean who, uh, which, that, what. It can mean anything. So basically God is saying, I am who I am. I am what I am. I am that I am. I am which I am. In other words, he's talking about pure presence. He's talking about pure existence. He's talking about presence itself. Who God is, is presence at the core. Presence is the ultimate reality of everything, if you will. And so what he's telling Moses is, this presence has sent you. This self-existence has sent you. This God who cannot be broken down into any constituent parts. The Jews called God the one with no opposite. There, there was nothing that you could do, ineffable. You know, Ian Sof later, the Jews called it, which was that ineffability of God. And so here is God giving him this idea of pure presence. Who I am is presence. You can't escape my presence. The presence is everywhere. There's nowhere you can outrun it. There's nowhere you can go where it is not at. I love Brother Lawrence who said, even if I found myself in hell, the presence of my God would turn it into a paradise. You see what he's saying? There is no place. Maybe he's using a little bit of hyperbole there. But he's saying there is no place that my God is not. And if I am present to my God, I am in paradise, wherever I am. Wow. That's an incredible statement. One that most of us are probably not ready to embrace just yet. And yet, it's both a promise and it's an expression of God's nature, the nature of presence, what God is. But how are we supposed to understand that? How is God always present to us when we don't feel that God is present to us? In fact, we often feel that God's a million miles away. I mean, this sounds really good in theory, Dave, but what is going on here? Because I'll tell you what, my life is difficult. And the more difficult it gets, the more I feel that God is nowhere to be found. If the tree falls in the forest and no one is there to hear it, you know, if we don't feel God's presence, is it really there? And not only that, to make things more confusing, the scriptures are full of references to God turning his back on us, refusing to answer, not showing up for coffee at Starbucks. All these things. How are we supposed to parse that? How are we supposed to put all this together when our own experience tells us that God isn't always present? And we see that echoed in the words of scripture. How are we supposed to deal with that? Take a look at Matthew 27, verse 46. Jesus on the cross. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There it is. There is the classic, the classic formulation of it. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani in Aramaic. Did God abandon Jesus? Now, that's, do you know that's a big debate in Christian circles, among Christian scholars? That's a big debate. Did God abandon Jesus on the cross? You know what one of the uh, arguments is? That that was the moment that Jesus became sin. 
He became sin of all mankind. And so God's holy presence could, could not abide it, could not be in the presence of that sin. And so for that moment, yes, Jesus was abandoned. You probably know me well enough to know that I'm not really buying that. You know? Really, when it comes to when it comes to scriptural hermeneutics and trying to interpret uh, scripture, uh, I like to use Occam's razor. And if you're familiar with Occam's razor, it's of all of the explanations for something, the simplest one tends to be true. I think it's pretty clear when we read other scriptures that state, state directly that God never leaves or forsakes us. Take a look at Deuteronomy 31.6. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them who are them, all your enemies, all those in the land of Canaan that you're going to be taking. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. And that's echoed at Hebrews 13.5. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself, God himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. That's about as clear as it gets, declarative. And yet we have all these other scriptures. How are we supposed to understand that? The simplest idea is is that God is always present because the scripture says that directly, but he doesn't always feel present because the scriptures are written from a human point of view. The scriptures are reflecting the relationship that a people have with their God, a nation has with its God, and individuals have with their God. And there are times when our emotions and everything is going up and down and side to side. We're going to feel God. We're not going to feel God like any other relationship we have. Whether it's a marriage, whether it's your children, you move into focus and you move back out again. And even though God is consistent, we're doing this. So we're in focus, we're out of focus. It makes perfect sense. This is what the scripture is showing us. The Hebrews don't try to resolve life's little paradoxes. They don't worry about it. They'll put right down in, in, in one verse and in the next verse something that looks like it's completely contradictory. But one is dealing with the reality. And the other is dealing with the experience. And they're not always the same. The reality is that God never leaves or forsakes us, but the experience is that we're not going to feel that presence. We're not going to feel that connection at times. And Jesus being completely human, he didn't feel it then. God didn't leave him, but he didn't feel connected. But there's more to the story, because what is Jesus doing here when he says this? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting the first line of Psalm 22. This is a song of David. And if you know anything about David's life, you know that his life was really hard. From the moment he took arms up against Goliath, everything was difficult from that point on. He got the notoriety, he got the position, but he also got everything that came with that kind of notoriety. And he was doing everything right. He was God's anointed, and he was loyal to the king, and yet the king was so jealous and so paranoid that David ends up exiled. David ends up on the run. David ends up running for his life through the mountains and living in caves. And he writes about it. My God, why have you forsaken me? What did I do to deserve this? Isn't that the most logical and the most human thing? Haven't you said that half a million times yourself in life? What did I do to deserve this? But there's something going on in Psalm 22, and Jesus quoting it is significant. 
not only because it reflected exactly what he was feeling at the time, apparently, but in Psalm 22, there's an alternation, there's an oscillation that is taking place. Take a look at Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. But then in the next stanza, yet you are holy. O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. Next stanza, but I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. And then the next, yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breasts. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. And it continues on. Despair and hope. Experience of abandonment. But coming back to the reality of presence. Jesus, I believe, was quoting this because he was talking to himself. Jesus was steeped in Scripture. He used Scripture all the time. It was his roadmap. It was his song line through his life. And so that would have come to mind. And that reminder that even though he feels abandoned, even though he feels apart, God's promise is still there. His presence is still there. And not only was he doing it for himself, but think about it. His worst moment on the cross was also his followers' worst moment of their lives with him. This was the death of everything that they believed in, everything that they had trusted, everything they gave up so much for, hanging there on the cross. And Jesus is reminding them as well, because steeped in the scriptures, they would have known as soon as he started that, they would have continued it in their minds and also been reminded that God's presence is still here. His promise will not come back void. Jesus, I believe, was doing this absolutely on purpose, trying to take us, trying to take his people somewhere really important. And us too. The followers and us have got to get this lesson somehow imprinted that the feeling of abandonment is not the reality. It's so hard for us to get this aspect of presence, so hard for us to understand what's going on here. See, we're finite creatures. We can only be at one place at one time. Sometimes this is called the tyranny of the finite. Have you heard that phrase before? It means one place at one time. Everything that we experience in life is always at one intersection. We're at the corner of here and now. You look up and you see the two signs, it's going to be here and now. We're always at that corner. That's the only place we can ever be because we're finite creatures. If we say yes to anything, it means we had to say no to everything else. That's the tyranny of the finite. If we're going to meet a person, if we're going to be in someone's presence, it's because we're at the corner of here and now. If we're going to meet God, even though God can be anywhere and everywhere all at the same time, the only place that we're going to meet God is at the corner of here and now. But here's the catch. See, our minds, since the moment that we ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, since the moment that we became self-aware, 
sentient creatures, right? Our minds became unconstrained. Our minds can go anywhere. That's the part of us that's made in God's image, you see. The part that can choose. The part that can imagine, unconstrained. But as soon as our mind wanders away from the intersection of here and now, we're no longer present. We no longer feel the presence. And we can imagine all sorts of separation. That's the catch. Here we are. How do we stay in presence when our minds can obviously take us out? I wanted to give you just a a little, a couple of passages from the book and, and see if this kind of locks it in. If I'm here, I'm not anywhere else. What at first seems self what first seems self evident, a truism, with a closer look makes a huge statement about the value of our presence. We are finite creatures. We are only physically present here for a limited amount of time, and we can only be present one place at a time. If I'm here, I'm not anywhere else. If I'm here, it's because I made a conscious choice to be here and nowhere else. Out of all the possible places I could have been, I chose this place, this time, as the most important place I could be. What a statement that makes to everyone around me. The greatest gift I can ever give to another is the gift of my presence. With that presence, I am actually giving the very stuff of which my life is made. I'm giving my life away, laying down my life for my friends. Jesus said there is no greater gift than this, no greater love. The gift of our presence is is the ultimate expression of love. I love you enough that being here with you is my highest priority. I said no to everything and everyone else in the world to be with you right here, right now. My finiteness makes such a statement possible. But there are stars beneath my feet. I remember as a kid lying in bed at night trying to process the elements of the Baltimore Catechism that the nuns had recited for us that day in school. God is, God always was, and God always will be. God is and God always will be were easy enough. I could picture a line beginning with the rumpled sheets on my bed and extending off forever and never ending. But always was? How does anyone picture that? How does anyone imagine something that has no beginning, that has always been, that always was before anything else that ever was? It's disorienting, disturbing, irreconcilable, just like the stars beneath our feet. We are relatively uncomfortable with the notion of infinity. I'm sorry, we are relatively comfortable with the notion of infinity over our heads, of infinite number and extension in that direction, in one direction only. But there should be solid ground beneath us, something we can count on, stand on. The presence of stars beneath us, the view of a star field that is always the same wherever we look, can wither our sense of place and self if we refuse to make friends with the reality of life. We can live bewildered and defensive lives trying to maintain the illusion of solid ground, of God and stars coming at us from only one direction, relegating God's presence to neatly defined times and places. Or we can let go, open up, free-falling into an endless, chaotic riot of stars. The presence of God burns beneath our feet, all around in every possible direction, equal density and distribution. It never changes and never dims. But we won't see it beneath us. 
Our view remains blocked as long as we're focused on the big ball we're standing on. Neither will we see it above and around as long as the nearby star of our own consciousness floods every corner of our minds and hides it behind a blue curtain. But it's there all the same, trying to break through our defenses to tell us, I love you enough that being with you is my highest priority. I created a universe in which I can always say yes to you everywhere, every when, and without exception. God's infiniteness makes such a statement possible. See, this is the genius of the contemplative life. What is the contemplative life all about? We've talked about that so much in here. The contemplative life is the conscious practice of setting the sun of our consciousness so that we can see the stars. When that sun comes up, when we're focused on our thoughts, all of the glare and all of the chatter, all of the scatter, all of the noise of our egoic minds, when we're focused on that, we can't see the stars. It's just a blue curtain up there. But in centering prayer, in the meditation, in the mindfulness, in the practice of contemplative life, we set that sun, let it go down, and get a really dark sky so God's presence is there. But there's more to it because there's stars beneath our feet as well. If we're always focused on the details of life, the physical details, if we're always focused on our worldview that we cling to and will not let go of, then we can't see past that ball we're standing on to see the stars beneath our feet as well. Infinity infinity in that direction as well as above. And letting that play with us, letting that disorientation become a part of our life until it becomes something that we're familiar with, comfortable with, and will lean into. But the contemplative life does that. It sets the sun of our consciousness and it allows us to deconstruct the worldview that blocks the view of presence. This is what contemplation is all about. This is what Jesus is trying to show us how to do. God's presence is that complete, that absolute. There is no place that we go that isn't defined as the center of God's presence and God's love. But it's up to us if that's ever going to become a reality in our lives, whether we're feeling it at the moment or not. So remember the tradition that we started with? That church, prayer, and worship create sacred space. Places we go to meet God. Now, that acknowledges the stars over our head, I think. That we have certain rituals and we have certain practices that allow us to set the sun, and see the stars over our head. But if we want to see the stars beneath our feet, then we must get out of our world. And we need to recognize this as a challenge, that the exact center of God's presence is the only position that exists. And no ritual can take us to presence. It can only make us aware that we already are. Do you see the difference? We have relegated God's presence to certain places and times and conditions and circumstances. But it's so much more. It's up to us to empty out to see if we can make it real in our lives. Let it change things. Last thing I wanted to read you was when this first started to take hold in my life, it was just after Marion and I were married. 
getting to be 25 years ago. So on Sunday, May 22nd, 1994, at 6.20 a.m., just a little bit OCD, am I? I wrote a journal entry, and I wanted to read part of it to you. Almost ready to turn off the desk lamp. Last brave little star fighting to be seen through the lightning blue between the upper branches. Cold morning. Cold, dark apartment. Very quiet. Little girls asleep in the other room. The little star is gone now. Had to give up the fight against the big star coming up the other side of the sky. Just starting to color the treetops. Light off. Cool blue cast over the pages now. Quarter to seven. Time to shower. Time to shave. Time to wake you as slowly and gently as possible. Time for stretching and dressing and donuts on the drive to church. Time for the noise to begin. The day to rise up and roll over us. Grow old. Fade to evening. To give us just enough time to gather enough strength to get up and watch the little star lose its fight once more in the coming glare. And just now... In my silence, looking for next words, feeling the weight of the emptiness of not knowing exactly what to say, feeling myself at the end of myself with nothing else to offer this page or anything or anyone else, I hear soft footsteps, bare footsteps in the carpet behind me, and I turn to you, stumbling toward me, eyes half-closed, arms out. I gather you into my lap, warm, smooth, hold tight, whisper in your ear. Groggy whispers back, Don't you see? This is life. I hold it in my arms, precious, fleeting, unpredictable, untenable. It comes unbidden, stays as long as it desires, changes form without notice. And when we think it's over, when we think there's nothing left, soft footsteps come from behind and flow warmly into our laps and breathe new words into empty pens new thoughts into empty minds, new fire into cold hearts. The little star is not lost. It's still there, burning with the intensity of a thousand suns. It simply gave way for a time, a short time, to let us have day, warmth, variety, life. But it is still right there between the branches, between someone's branches as this ball turns. You are like this, Lord burning brightly beyond the light blue veil, giving way to our daylight for a time while we live. I keep forgetting that you are here, that the veil is much closer than the sky, that I am not all there is, that when I am over, your soft footsteps will come and bring new life and words, if only I will pull you into my lap and hold you as though my life depended on it. Oh, my God, my Lord, my life. Thank you. Thank you for being the tears on my cheeks. Thank you for being my little girl sleeping again in my lap, for my littler one in the next room and my bigger one away in the mountains. Thank you for this cold, clear morning, for the doves sitting in the top branches of the lightning trees. Thank you for my pen. Thank you for reminding me of my life. You are the unexpected, Lord. You are the ultimate surprise that keeps us guessing, interested, and alive. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your presence. We would cease to exist without your presence. I suppose you would cease to exist without your presence. 
Your presence is everything to us. Help us to understand how everything works, what it really means. And help us to be fearless enough to lay down anything that stands between us and your presence and the presence of each other. We want it all, Lord. We want your presence, Lord. Help us to be that courageous. Help us to use the example that you have given us over and over again in Scripture and in life, that this is the way of it. This is the shape of it, that we can do this. And what we find on the other side of our fears is a freedom that we never could imagine. Thank you, Father, for loving us, for never leaving or forsaking us. Never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand.